It is the third Sunday of Advent, although one of our candles went kaput there. Um, but it is the third Sunday of Advent, traditionally known as the joy candle. The pink candle is the joy candle. You light that the third Sunday of Advent. And in thinking of joy, I suppose, I got to thinking that it is certainly the season. Tis the season of parties. Am I wrong? No. Okay. December, Advent, Christmas, tis the season of parties, right? There's the Tannenbaum Ball. There are staff parties. There are company parties. There are nonprofit parties. There are fundraising parties. There are Sunday school parties. There's, let me just say that ever since Thanksgiving, Brenda and I have been partying nonstop. And it's awesome. <laughs> now come January, we will have to account for our sins, okay? <laughs> and there will be a reckoning. But uh, in the meantime, it's been awesome. All these parties to go to. Tis the season. Part of my uh, inspiration and permission giving and uh, resistance of guilt about it is Richard Foster, a Christian writer, uh, in his book, Celebration of Discipline. He's got a whole chapter uh, about celebration as a spiritual discipline. And he reminds uh, his readers that in the Old Testament, um, the Lord provided that there are a minimum of three festivals that you have to go to during the year. Now, there's all these other festivals, but you have to go to at least three. And, of course, there's Sabbath, which is basically a weekly dinner party. Okay, so, so get your head wrapped around that. The law of the Lord, God commands you to have a party at least three times a year. Okay, you know, just shed your stereotype of the Old Testament at the door, <laughs> right? That God wants you to celebrate on a regular basis. It also occurs to me that in the New Testament, in the Gospels, uh, in the Gospels, there are lots of parties going on. That the setting for a lot of what Jesus says and does is at a dinner party. People are constantly throwing dinner parties for Jesus. And of course, that's what you do. The, the guest of honor comes, and what do you do? What do you do? You start cooking, right? You start preparing. You start planning a way to receive this celebrity who's come into town. And then he gets some pushback on this from the religious experts, from the religious respectable people who've read that Old Testament and they know you're supposed to celebrate, you're supposed to have parties, you're supposed to have dinner parties. Every, every Sabbath you have a dinner party. And there's a place just a few verses after this reading uh, that David read to you from the 11th chapter of Matthew where Jesus just seems frustrated with this pushback. He says, for John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Oh, okay, so now we get to it, right? It's not about him having a party, it's about who he's having a party with, right? Is 
he's a respectable rabbi and you have a dinner party with respectable people, right? But Jesus isn't doing that. He's partying with the wrong sort of people. He's going to dinner parties with people who are not respectable in the eyes of others. Now, that might sound like that doesn't have a whole lot to do with you or I, but I think we do that all the time. I talked about inviting people to church. Who do you invite to people to church? What if, would you invite some charismatic person? I mean, are you going to start doing this? Do you really want that here? Huh? Or maybe it's somebody who has a different set of politics that is so wrong in your mind that you don't even get how they don't get how wrong that is and you want them here? Are you going to invite them? What if it's somebody who has a different understanding and experience of human sexuality? Do you invite them? Because if we're together, that means there's some level of acceptance going on, right? And that's the issue they have with Jesus. He's hanging out with them, but he's eating with them. He's, he's enjoying their company. Does that mean that he's accepting of that? Well, I'll get back to you this on this in a few minutes. Uh, but now I want to share with you uh, a report. And the report is that in the last few months, people have been seeing ghosts in our sanctuary. I've had several different people tell me several different stories, um, including Judy Hickerson. Now, um, I, I meant to call Judy and ask for permission to tell this story. <laughs> That's what I usually do, but um, I got to thinking she might say no, so I didn't call her. <laughs> and she'll make me pay for it, so don't worry. Um, so, it's about ghosts, and, and I think, well, why not? I mean, what... What kind of lame, soulless, dull church would we be not to have a few ghosts hanging around? It just makes sense. We preach, oh no, I guess a couple of months ago, resurrected, hanging out with us. Well, oh no, I guess a couple of months ago, Judy uh, came into the office. Uh, Judy comes up here during the week to, to practice uh, the organ. And she walked in the office and she said, the whistler is back. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, every once in a while, I'm in here practicing the organ, and I'll hear somebody uh, whistling along with the music. And I turn around, and nobody's here. And so um, a couple of days later, Judy was in here practicing, and I came up behind her, and I started whistling. <laughs> and she didn't even turn around. She said... The ghost knows how to whistle in the proper pitch. <laughs> now, here's what's interesting to me. I've repeated this story several times, and nearly every time, at least one person starts to try to explain it. Well, maybe there's something wrong with the pipe organ. Maybe there's some acoustical issue. Maybe... Lumpkin's hiding in the back pew back there. Um, maybe it's a ghost. A happy one, it sounds like. 
And why, why are we so skeptical? Why did you giggle a moment ago when I told you that there are ghosts in the sanctuary? Huh? Now, we just read a scripture, uh, Mary's song called the Magnificat, where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and she begins to sing this song. And we read that story, uh, an angel, and we don't even blink. We don't even think about it. We decorate our house with these little angels, right? But if I were to tell you that last night an angel came and spoke to me, you might be thinking Lumpkin needs to up his medication, <laughs> right? We would be skeptical in the here and now, right? Well, is it possible that there are things we can't explain and things we can't understand, but they are no less real? Hmm? All of that Israel uh, on our way to Bethlehem. And we started out two Sundays ago at First Church, downtown Jerusalem, the Temple of Zion, where Jesus talks about the end of the world, or at least the end of the world the way it is now, the end of a world of greed and violence and brokenness and the possibility of a brand new world breaking in, the kind of world we hope for, the world we think as it should be, a world lived under God's name and love and protection and grace. And then last week we walked down from Jerusalem to the Jordan River down to Wilderness Baptist Church on the Jordan being saved and people are getting ready for this new kingdom that seems to be breaking in. And today we go from the lower Jordan River up to uh, the Galilee area, to Capernaum and Nazareth, which is about 55 miles or so. Uh, if you're in really good shape, you'd walk that in two or three days. Uh, if not, you might drive. It would take you just a couple of hours. And that's okay, but we're going up there because something's going on up around the Galilee. Something amazing and unusual is going on, and that's not typical. What's typical is the opposite, which is not a lot goes on up around the Galilee. Now, I've put some things up here, um, that map, and most of the action most of the Old Testament stories and action is taking place down in the south, down around Jerusalem and Bethel and uh, the land of Judah. Uh, uh, that's, that's where most of the Old Testament action is. And that's where Jerusalem is, the city of God. This is ground zero for how we understand life and faith in God. And in the Old Testament, you rarely read anything about things going on up around Galilee. And then you have um, Nazareth. I think this is a photograph of some place in the Middle East. Um, but someone posted this in the first century. Nazareth was a, a tiny town. Um, maybe not more than a few hundred people living there. Very obscure, unimportant uh, out-of-the-way place. And if you go there now, uh, they've built this huge church over the place where they think maybe that's where Mary and Joseph lived and where Jesus grew up. Now, uh, this is a huge 
facility and someone said that probably the whole city of Nazareth from the first century could fit inside that church. So probably somewhere in there <laughs> is the right spot, right? And on the inside, uh, it's a gorgeous, beautiful sanctuary. Uh, I had a real unexpected and amazing spiritual experience there. Um, it's, it's very beautiful. Now, part of um, what's going on in the first century is that up around the Sea of Galilee, um, which is quite rugged, okay, uh, it's mostly rural, it's, uh, it's fairly rugged, uh, it can be beautiful, of course, um, it's also an area that's a pretty big melting pot in the first century of all these different faiths, all these different religions. There's pagans and there's all these citizens of the Roman Empire and there's Jews and, and all these different ethnic groups and they all live in that area and they're, they're kind of, by and large, the wrong sort of people, right? And what's Jesus doing up there hanging around the wrong sort of people? What's interesting to me is this is modern Nazareth. It's a big, huge city, and it's still a melting pot. There are Christians there, there's Jews there, there's Muslims there, and by and large, they get along pretty well. Uh, you rarely hear in the press about violence going on in around Nazareth. Well, something's going on up there, although usually not much is going on. And so we go to Nazareth, where Mary has been talking to the angel Gabriel, and she sings this song, the Magnificat, that was read to you earlier. She sings this song, grace has come upon her, joy it is in her heart. I like to think that she danced, although it doesn't say that she did. Maybe an Israeli kind of dance with little finger symbols that she just, you just have to dance and you just have to sing. And what does she have to sing about? She's a, a nobody person from an incredibly obscure and nobody town with a nothing future. And she sings, she dances. What does she have to sing about? And then we walk a few miles over to Capernaum. Uh, this is an excavated ruin of a uh, first century synagogue. And they think that maybe Jesus might have preached and healed in this very place. But Capernaum, something amazing and powerful is going on in Capernaum. And it's sort of ground zero for Jesus' ministry. Things are going on charismatic Capernaum Charismatic Church, because it is indeed charismatic. There are people that are coming and they can't walk without terrible pain, and suddenly they're dancing the two-step down at the dance hall. There are those whose eyes are covered with cataracts who now see light and color in the faces of their loved ones and can go deer hunting once again. There are those who can't hear the television when it's turned all the way up and it's so loud it's driving everybody in the house crazy. And now they can hear the rustle of leaves when they walk. 
and they can hear the soft diseases that don't have to spend every week making doctor's appointments. Can I get an amen? <laughs> yes, yes, something's going on up there. There are those who are just one missed paycheck away from financial disaster, one unexpected car repair bill, one unexpected visit to the emergency room and now you got to pay for it and you don't know how you're going to work out of this hole and they're hearing that maybe they are not forgotten and that God is with them and there are possibilities for the future. Mary sings her song, this forgotten person understands that she is not a nobody and she is not forgotten and she is blessed by God. Jesus in his ministry confronts evil. He casts out the demons. He removes what is deathly and debilitating. He brings life and love and grace and life. And, and folks are on fire. Folks are on fire. Capernaum, charismatic church. Now, we are trained by our culture. We are trained to be reasonable, rational, measured, careful, cautious, and maybe even a little offended at people who don't seem to do that. Hmm? That's kind of who we are. I got this picture of a charismatic church celebration. Would we feel comfortable there if you walked in the door on Sunday morning and all the rest of us were doing that? You would wonder what's going on, right? And this lady, huh? Who's celebrating Christ in her life. And I had to add this one. Okay. I don't know what this picture means. <laughs> I don't know if that guitar playing is really bad. Or if he just can't stand it in some other way. But. What do they have to be so happy about? Why are they on fire? Why are they so happy? And why do we have the automatic response to be skeptical, to laugh at the idea of ghosts in the sanctuary, to be shy about just letting loose with the presence of God. Jesus says that it's really hard to understand how the kingdom works unless you think about it like a child. Um, a few months ago, um, our little uh, acolyte Genevieve was in the outer office and I walked out in the outer office and I said, uh, Genevieve, I said, did you know that there is a giraffe in my office eating M&Ms? And she glared at me like you were so full of it. And then she looked at me. I said, come on in. There is a giraffe. In my office, eating M&M's. <laughs> you know, children know that they don't know everything. And they, they delight in mystery and surprise. And they know that you can experience something and get caught up in something, even if you don't always rationally understand it. And then we become adults and we get cautious. And we're not sure. Even John the Baptist struggles with that. He's in prison. It didn't go the way he thought it would. 
He sends messengers to Jesus. Are you the one? Or shall we keep on waiting? I think maybe what John is struggling with is this Messiah isn't acting like the kind of Messiah he expected. One that's going to separate those who are wrong from those who are right. Separate the wheat from the chaff. Sort all this out so that those wrong people are over there and the right people are over here. And Jesus is spending his time with everybody. Especially with those wrong sorts of people. And Jesus quotes Isaiah, the, the Deaf can hear, the sick are healed, uh, the blind can see. Is this the kind of Messiah you thought it would be? I went to see uh, the Mr. Rogers movie. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I highly recommend it. And there's a scene where the reporter is standing next to the agent for uh, Fred Rogers and Fred's out there talking to all these children, and the guy says, uh, says, he loves children, doesn't he? And the agent said, oh, he loves everybody, but he especially loves people like you. And the guy says, what do you mean, people like me? He said, you know, broken. <laughs> he especially loves the broken. Mary dances. She says what I think is the whole gospel in one sentence. For he has done great things for me. For me. I'm not forgotten. I'm not a nobody. I'm blessed. Walter Brueggemann, biblical scholar, says the Bible is relentless in its conviction that nothing that is skewed or disordered or deathly has to remain the way it is. The gospel is the promise of newness. Advent is the expectation that not everything is nailed down. Not everything has to be the way it is. A promise of newness that counters our exhaustion, our despair, our cynicism, our measured rationality. You know, charisma. Charisma in the Bible is it's a Greek word that simply means grace. The outpouring of grace. Charisma is this thing that God is doing in the lives of all the wrong people. That's what's going on in this scripture. And tell me, what's harder to believe in? Is it, is it harder to believe that there might be ghosts in the sanctuary? Or is it harder to believe that you might actually be forgiven? What's harder to believe in? Angels? Or that which is broken might actually be repaired. What's, what's harder to believe in? That, that, that there is miraculous healings or that in spite of who you know you are deep down inside, there is still something about you that is treasured. Something that is still Wonderful. Something that Jesus would come and find you. Because he especially loves those of us who are broken. What would happen? What would happen? <laughs> well, maybe we'd throw a party. 
Maybe we'd sing. Maybe even us Methodists would dance. Oh my gosh. That the joy, the joy is not this happy feeling, but this amazing thing that God is doing. And that's the only response that would come natural to me. That there's something that's not completely dead, not completely over, not completely broken. Something that this amazing God wants to come and give us the blessing.